Uh, You guys can turn to Matthew chapter 3. That's where we will be this morning. Uh, Last week, Chad finished off in chapter 2. Roughly 30 years have passed from where we left off there. And more importantly, though, uh, roughly 400 years have passed since the nation of Israel has really heard from God. But that's about to change. God is about to do something new. So the Old Testament ends with this prophecy about a a prophet that would come. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And the book of Isaiah also promises that God will, God will send this messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord. So it's, it's kind of like the idea of a herald, not a guy's name, but a proclaimer. And I always tell it's like, Harold. No, um, it's just, every time I say that, I think that, sorry. But this, the herald that would, that would go before the king on the road to make sure that everybody knows that he was coming, make sure that the road was prepared and smooth for his arrival. And the book of, um, the book of Isaiah says that God is going to send that messenger ahead of time. So in Matthew 11, Jesus actually identifies that John the Baptist is that guy. He is the promised prophet. And so it says in Matthew 11, this is of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. We're going to be looking a little bit at him this morning. In verse 14, Jesus goes on to say, and if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah who was to come. So so we're seeing God doing something incredible here. After a very long drought, God sends a prophet named John the Baptist to ready the people for the king's arrival. So Matthew chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is He who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, John wore the official uniform of the prophets. I don't know if they got together and had a meeting and determined that this was, you know, camel's hair and the belt and the whole thing, but um, he, he was in that uniform. And it tells us that he ate bugs, which is just gross. Um, even if you dipped him in honey, I think that would still be disgusting. I don't think I could have been a prophet if that's what it took. But the, the clothes and the lifestyle that John had on would have immediately reminded people of Elijah. They would have seen that and recognized the connection. It would also say something about the credibility of the messenger and also his message because John's ministry didn't include fancy buildings and, and you know fancy clothes, the finest food and drink. It's not, it's not as if John landed in the desert in a private jet and got out and started to deliver his message. Um, if he had, you could easily conclude that he was just in it for the money. But when you're living in the desert, wearing camel's hair and eating bugs, nobody's going to say that you're in it for the money at that point, right? And the fact that he fearlessly preached a message that was going to get him into big trouble also, eventually even getting him killed, also testifies to to the credibility of who this guy was and what he was saying. It's also a reminder, just by the way, of the fact that to have a successful ministry, you don't have to have all the bells and whistles that we think that you need to have sometimes. I think so many churches have got into this idea of if you build it, they will come. And so there's, you know, I'm not trying to pick on anything, but I, you know, imagining light shows and fog machines and all this great, I mean, they're in the desert. It's dirty. It's dusty. It's hot. There's nothing exciting going on out there other than the Word of God 
is there. People are going there to meet God and to be changed. And, and that's something that God will bring people to hear that. And, and I, I, I love that, that it, it's not up to us to create some kind of a great thing. God has created a great thing in and of himself. And it was actually something people were being drawn to. In verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So something amazing is happening here. A very large number of people are coming out to be baptized. Baptism, just so you know, was not a regular practice for Israelites, not, at least not like this. Now, a Gentile wanting to come into the, the Jewish faith, they would have been baptized. That was normal. Uh, it was also common for Jewish people to do certain ceremonial uh, washings and, and kind of ritual washings at times. But this would have been a very unusual thing for a Jewish person to take part in. This was a baptism of repentance, which means you were identifying as a sinner in need of change publicly. They were publicly admitting this by being there and doing this. And their sincerity becomes even more convincing when you consider the potential cost involved in what they were doing, because none of this was approved or sanctioned by the religious leaders. This could have meant loss of job and status, family. Uh, there was a price to be paid for this. And eventually the religious leaders did catch wind of it, and they headed down to the desert to see what was going on. And in the spirit of Elijah, John welcomes them in the same way that the prophet Elijah might have welcomed him, I like to imagine. Verse 7 says, But when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Welcome, fellas. Come on in. The water's fine. That's not what he says. It's not even close. John's just awesome. This is good stuff. He looked at them and said, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Not good. He's like, he's not pulling any punches. He doesn't care who they are. Brood of vipers is, is really um, calling them offspring of snakes. Or if you want to take that just a little further, Satan's kids. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, Jesus said the same thing about him. That's, har- that's harsh. That's a pretty gnarly thing to say. And then he asks them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I actually think it's kind of a wonderfully sarcastic remark, which I appreciate being a, a pretty sarcastic person myself. I thought that was my spiritual gift, and then I found out it's actually not even on the list. But I'm so good at it, I just assumed it was there. But This is the idea of what John the Baptist is saying. Hey, I've warned these people about the wrath to come, and I'm providing the way for them to escape it. And since you're not lining up behind them to get into the water, I assume somebody's already warned you guys about this, right? That, that's obviously, or you'd be in this line too, because you have the same wrath problem directed at you that these guys do. So obviously you've already found the answer, correct? That's what he's saying. He's pointing out that the lack of godly fruit in their life means that there's a problem here that they should be paying attention to. They have the same need to confess their sin, to repent, and to be baptized. Of course, they don't agree with that at all, do they? Um, they're going to say, now you don't, you don't understand, we don't need this. And they're going to say it's because they're Abraham's children that they don't need to. But John is ready for that. He doesn't even give him a chance to say it. He keys right in on it. In verse 9, he says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abra- for, Abra- or for Abraham. Picturing like the stones that are there on the riverbed. See, they were relying on their heritage and their nationality for their salvation. They assumed that was enough. But God's plan of salvation is the same for everyone. We must place our faith in Jesus and not anything else to be saved. See, they looked forward to the cross in the same way that we look back to it. But the plan of salvation has always been the same. 
And I can't help but see parallels between the Jewish people trusting in their heritage and the nation they were a part of to be their salvation in the same way that I see American Christians doing this today. They just assume that because we're part of this country and that God's blessing has been upon it in the past, that, that we're just we're OK because of that. That's not how salvation works. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your family line. It's not about your parents' faith. You know, somebody once said God doesn't have grandchildren. That's that's the idea here. This isn't how salvation works. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. That's how it works. God's plan of redemption, though, is about to expand. And that's kind of what John the Baptist is letting them know there. He's saying that God can raise up more children for Abraham from something they would have thought was impossible. And not the rocks on the on the you know riverbed, but Gentiles is who he's talking about. We are going to get in on this action somehow. The Jewish nation's rejection of Jesus is going to open the door of salvation for Gentiles. I'm pretty happy about that as a Gentile. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, that's very good. Romans 11 says that branches were broken off so that we could be grafted in. Praise God that he allowed us to become part of his people. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to do that for us. And praise God that Romans 11 goes on to say that salvation is still available to them. It says, and even they, the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. But it's the same program. Jesus, belief in him. Now, I believe this is partly what's being referred to in verse 10 when it says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So a very clear distinction is being made here between those who confess their sin, repent, are baptized, and bear fruit, and those who do not. The winnowing fork here is, is what they would use on the threshing floor, like I've ever done this in my life, but I read about it, so I've never, I've never held a winnowing fork, and I'm not even sure what it looks like. But, but they would use this to basically separate the grain from the chaff. And so you would, you would scoop the, the winnowing fork underneath this stuff, and you would kind of throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, but the, the grain would remain because there was substance there, and the chaff had no substance. And that's really what we're talking about. This is exactly what we're seeing, I think, in, in the American church today in many ways, is that as a cost has come, and as, as it's been harder to name the name of Christ, we're seeing a lot of people just kind of blown away and falling away because there's really no substance to their belief. So the big ideas that we see in this passage are three. I know I just buzzed through that quick, but we're going to spend more time kind of developing some of these things. The first thing we see is repent, because change is needed. The second thing is be baptized, because change is possible. And, and the last one is why. Why would we do this? And the answer is because the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent is the first one. Repent is one of those words that's almost like a bad word. And, you know, when you hear somebody, I just pictured a cranky old guy downtown going, repent, you know, yelling at people. And it, it's just, it's one of those words that kind of feels weird when you hear it. And it's probably accurate because it, it basically is saying that something is wrong with you. And whatever that something is, if it doesn't change, something bad's going to happen. And I believe that's actually built into us by God. I believe that's a grace that he's put into us because we all know that something's not right 
with us and something's not right with our world and change is needed. But sadly, repentance just gets left out of the conversation of salvation today, does it not? And we know why. It's because repentance doesn't fill the seats. You know, people don't want to line up and come to church on a Sunday morning to hear you're not okay and something needs to change or else. I mean, that's just not a a popular message to have to, to tell people. But it's definitely something we must teach. And in fact, I would say it's the most loving thing we can tell somebody if we believe that eternal condemnation is the consequence if they don't. Acts chapter 17 tells us that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And who is that man? It's his son, Jesus. This is a real thing. So repentance is important. But what does repentance mean and what does it include? The first thing we see it tied to in this passage is the confession of sin, which means that we admit we're wrong, that we've done wrong. That's, that's what confession is. It really just kind of means to agree with God. So God has laid out these things that he says are wrong. And we can say, well, I, don't, I don't think they're wrong. Well, you can go that way. Or you can agree with God and say, those are wrong. That's what, what, that's what we do when we confess. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin in in its simplest form just means to miss the mark. And you probably heard that. Well, what's the mark? The mark is perfect holiness. So it's kind of like when you were a kid and you wanted to go on one of those rides and you had to be this tall to get on the ride. Well, to get into heaven, you must be this holy. The problem is the sign is so far up there that we can't even see it, let alone reach it. And that's our dilemma. So you and I, with our best attempt, can't come close to the target. I, I picture like arrows and a target, like our arrows are our good works, and the target is maybe 100 feet away, and the bullseye is, is perfect holiness. And I'm trying to you know, aim at that and give it my best shot. And I let go, and my arrow kind of goes dink right in front of me. Sometimes they go behind me, and it's like, well, how did, how did that even happen? That, that's what I feel like when I try to do this. And the truth is, most of the time, we don't even want to hit the target. We like our sin. We enjoy it. We're not trying to please God. So whether we're trying to hit the target or intentionally missing the target, our sin, our falling short, separates us from a holy God. And so the first step in repentance is admitting our woeful inability and confessing our sin to God. We've missed the mark. But this doesn't guarantee true repentance. Good step, first step toward it, but it doesn't guarantee it because we've all seen people repent, I'm putting that in quotes, that really don't seem to mean it. Oftentimes when somebody's caught red-handed and their back's against the wall, they will confess their sins and promise to change. We've seen this time and time again at press conferences. I kind of, I don't know, there's something sick in me that likes watching these things. You know, this person is adamant. They've done nothing wrong. They've done nothing. They've done nothing. I haven't done it. I did not. I always think of that. Sorry. Uh, And then something comes to light that proves that there's no way they can get out from underneath that. So what do they do? They call a press conference and say, I'm really sorry about what I did. (laughs) It's like, are you though? Are you just sorry that you got caught and had to face consequences? Because you weren't weren't sorry before. So the problem is that they're not broken over their sin. And that's the difference between true repentance, godly repentance even. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Without regret. So that's the idea that you're, you're confessing it no matter what the consequences are. It's, it's, a, it's a repentance that leads to salvation, to life. But it says, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's a repentance that leads to salvation, and there's a repentance that looks good, but doesn't change your course. 
All right. So a great question for you to consider is, do you hate your sin or do you hate the price you have to pay for it? There's a difference in those things. And we have a great example in the Bible of somebody who was truly broken over their sin. And I think it comes out in the way that he responded. That's King David. I love King David. Uh, I can relate to him, uh, unfortunately, for the wrong reason sometimes. But I just appreciate him. And, and you, you probably know the story. Uh, you can read about some of it in, in 2 Samuel 12. But if you don't know the story, you've got King David. Uh, the men are away at war. Uh, there's a woman named Bathsheba who's bathing on her rooftop David's on his rooftop. He can see her. She's married to another man, but he, he thinks she's beautiful. And so she calls him to himself, has his way with her, thinks he's going to get away with something. But then, oops, she's pregnant. And that's a problem because her husband's away at war. So David has a, a dilemma now. He's got to concoct a plan. So he brings Uriah home. Hey, you've been working hard on the battlefield. Come home and, and spend some time with your wife. Great plan, right? He didn't count on Uriah being a pretty upstanding guy who said, you know what? It's not right for me to, to enjoy being home and being with my wife in this way when all the rest of the guys are out on the, on the battlefield. So he refused to be with his wife. <laughs> well, King David's in big trouble again. What do I do? Get him drunk. That'll do it. Of course, he'll you know, weaken his inhibitions and then he'll go. It still doesn't do it. So now what? Well, now he says, okay, send him back to the front lines. And in the heat of battle, when things are really going strong, everybody take five steps back from Uriah. So he puts a hit out on Uriah, and Uriah dies. Then enters Nathan the prophet. <laughs> this would be a rough job, by the way. He comes in to talk to King David, and he tells him a story about a man who has all of these sheep, more sheep than he can count, more lambs, more goats, all this livestock, all that he wants. He's got all of this stuff. And then there's this, this other man who has one, just one sheep. That's all he's got. And they love that sheep. The family loves it and, and it treats it almost like a daughter. It's part of the family. A man comes into town, a guest comes into town, and the rich man needs to provide a meal. So he says, well, I'm not going to give up one of my lambs, one of my sheep. I'm going to take the guy that's only got one. And I'm going to prepare that, that sheep as a meal for this person. Well, David hears this from Nathan the prophet, and he's so angry. How can this be? Who could do a thing like this? This man deserves to die. He's mad. And Nathan looks at him and says, you are that man. I'm talking about you, King David. This is what you did. You had all of this. Uriah only had her. And you took her. And you killed him. David could have responded a lot of different ways here. But a man after God's own heart responds, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns what he's done. Not only that, he writes a psalm about it. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Psalm 51, it was a song that people would sing. Have you ever sinned and thought, you know what, I'm going to write a song for the church to sing about, about my sin and what I've done. I wouldn't do that at all. But that's what godly repentance looks like. He was broken over this. And Psalm 51 verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. True repentance doesn't make excuses. The minute you say, but, you're making an excuse. True repentance doesn't blame others. David could have said that. Well, she, you know, she was the one bathing on the rooftop. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we do, right? True repentance hates their sin and fully owns what they've done before the Lord. And this is rare. Have you noticed that? It's rare. Repentance is shocking. 
And it's beautiful when you see it. When you really see it, it's shocking and it's beautiful. Now, here's the point where you cover your toes because I'm going to probably step on them a little bit. Um, and I'm not meaning to. But one of the things that I've noticed that's really become popular today is therapy and counseling. A lot of people are into it. You know, in my day, you just ignored your problems and you didn't talk about them like a good, like, you know, uh, the, boom, the boomers were even worse. You just didn't talk about these things. Now you want to talk about them. You want to get it out in the open. So that's actually not a bad thing at all. But I've just noticed that this has become very popular today for people to see counselors and therapists. That's not the problem because they do help a lot of people and I'm not denying that. So don't misunderstand. My problem with it is that repentance is usually not the goal, okay? Um, the goal is to uncover the reasons why you are the way you are. And the more reasons you can uncover, the better. But that's where it stops for a lot of people because now they have an excuse to justify who they are and what they're doing, which is really what we want at the end of the day. So you'll hear people say, I just had this massive breakthrough, I'm really broken, but now I know why I'm broken. Isn't that great? <laughs> and it's like, well, are you are you still broken? Yeah, but I know why now. <laughs> it's like, okay, that could be helpful as long as there's something that goes beyond that. It's kind of like the same thing with these personality tests. I don't know if you guys do these. My kids love these tests, and they, they like to take them, and we get involved in them. And they're, they're actually pretty interesting. It's kind of fun to find out why you are the way you are. I happen to be a type 6 with a 5 wing, in case you were wondering, which is, yeah, the guardian. What's up? The guardian, that's what they call it. It's like, yeah, I like that. Okay, so you, re, you get this test, and you think, nice. This explains everything, right? Okay, it might explain some things, but does it solve anything? And this would be just as ludicrous as if you found out, let's say you got a diagnosis, like cancer, right? You found out you had it. You go to the doctor to find out why. And they tell you all the reasons why. Okay, well, maybe it wasn't your fault. Maybe it was that the town you lived in was next to a power plant, and, and that's why you got it, and now you know why. Maybe it's all the choices. Maybe it's everything you did that caused this, and you find out that's why. Maybe it's a combination of both of those things. Would you find that out and then leave the doctor's office and say, thank you so much for letting me know why, have a great day, and then go live your life? No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because <laughs> that's great. But now what? How do we solve this? That's what we don't want to get to half the time. James, the brother of John who wrote the book of James, would say it's like a person who looks at himself in a mirror, sees all kinds of things that are wrong, and then walks away immediately forgetting what he saw. God's word says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And so this is where repentance must come in. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of actions. So it involves turning away from one thing and towards something else. So turn from self, turn from your solutions, turn from sin, and turn to God, turn to His solutions, turn to His grace. The fundamental difference between the world's view of the, and the Bible's view of how all this works is, is massive. The world's idea is the problem is outside of you, and the solution is inside of you. The Bible says, no, that's just the opposite. The problem is that sin and, it, and its effects, doesn't always have to be your sin, by the way, it could be somebody else's sin, but the, the effects of sin, that's the problem. That's what's inside of you. The answer is not. The answer is found outside of you, and it's in the person of Jesus. And that's what makes true repentance so shocking and beautiful when it happens, because it's proof that God is working in you. 
I don't want to admit I'm wrong or that there's anything wrong with me ever. But when I do and when I want to change, it's evidence that he's at work in me. I'm broken. I can't fix myself. But there's one that I can turn to if I turn away from myself who can fix me. So, for instance, I'll just be honest and say I have an anger problem. I didn't know I had an anger problem until uh, I got married. And this has been 30 years, 32, whatever. Uh, We went and did one of those tests. You guys ever done one of those tests? I can't remember what it was called, Briggs and Meyer or something like that. Sounds like a lawnmower engine. Anyway, Briggs and Stratton. Um, we take this test and the, we come back for the results and the pastor is showing me this, this graph that's kind of going along. And then there's this thing that spikes up to the top of the graph. And he says, you, you're angry. And I said, no, I'm not. You jerk. No, I didn't do that. I didn't. No, I, I remember being shocked at this. I'm like, no, I'm not. And he's like, no, you, this, this shows tremendous anger. Wow. And I started thinking about it and I'm like, well, I am. I'm angry a lot. Now, I could have responded a couple ways to that. I could have started looking for the reasons why. Well, you don't understand. I have every right to be angry. You don't know what I, how I grew up. You don't know what my parents were like. You don't know. I mean, I could have gone down the line and started just blaming, blaming, blaming. But at the end of the day, you know what God calls my anger and my rage? He calls it sin. He says, I don't like that about you. It falls short of my glory, Brent. It doesn't, it doesn't please me. And when I find that out, it's like, ouch, I don't want that. So I start asking God to grant me repentance. Give me the ability to change, to be who you want me to be. And by the grace of God, over 30 years now, or whatever it's been since I became a Christian, I'm just not as angry as I used to be. Sometimes it actually frustrates my kids. They want me to get more fired up about things than I do. And it's like, you know what? God's in control. I don't need to, I don't need to get angry. I still get mad. No, don't. It's not all gone. Joy gets, she loves it. I'll, I'll be doing something. I'll go, come on. And I'm talking to like a fork in the kitchen or something. It's, it's not really, it's not too bad. It's getting, I'm getting better. But God continually shows us these things. I wish that repentance was, so we all understand that we need repentance to come to Christ. We need to turn from our old way of life for salvation to come to Christ. But it's not a one and done situation. So we're called to live a life of repentance, to walk in repentance every day. And so that might mean if you're like me, it's gonna, you're going to get dizzy some days <laughs> from all the turning that's going on. You know, you're walking and, oh, that's not right. And you turn and then, oh, that. So God just, he's going to keep showing you these things. You're going to find out things that you never even thought were a problem that God's going to, in his mercy and his timing and his grace, show you. And then you can turn from those things into him. Change is needed. There are two main reasons that people generally don't turn to God for change. It's because we think we're too bad, sinful, or because we think we're too good, prideful. Both require repentance. So if you're ever talking to a person who thinks that they're too bad, tell them about the love and the grace of God. Turn to that. If you're ever talking to a person who thinks they're just fine the way they are, tell them about the law and the judgment of God. Turn to God from that. I love this quote from David Dixon. He says, I have taken my good deeds and my bad deeds and thrown them together in a heap and fled from both of them to Christ. And in him, I have peace. So change is needed, but the good news is change is possible. And this is where we talk about baptism. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, John the Baptist ministry was the start of something new. He was ushering in the new covenant of grace. The baptism he was doing is different in some regards, you know, as far as what we do today as Christians who are baptized into Christ. 
uh, into the covenant of grace. But I'm going to kind of talk about the second part of that a little bit. Two sacraments are given to the church that we're aware of, the the baptism and and then communion as well. Both of these things clearly portray Jesus' work on the cross for us, what he accomplished for us as sinners through his sacrifice. And by taking part in them, we are both identifying with that work as sinners, and we're also participating in that work. And when I say participating, I don't mean in the accomplishment of it. I mean in the benefit of it. So one is heresy, one is not. So just make sure we understand that. So this is the idea. In baptism, we go down into death with Christ. Our sins go down into death. We are cleansed, and then we are raised to new life, made a new creation in Christ. So Romans 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what happens in water baptism does not save us, but it is inextricably linked to what does, the spiritual work that God does in us. Um, And that's kind of what what John's going to talk about here in a second. Baptism signifies death and a whole new way of life. It's kind of both a sign of believing and belonging. So when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, their baptism meant they were leaving the former way of life behind and and starting something different. So to me, it's kind of like putting a stake in the ground um, where it kind of marks the point where the old life is left off, it's left behind, and the new life in Christ begins. In verse 11, John contrasts what he's doing with the spiritual baptism that Jesus will perform. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, people have taken a run with this in all kinds of crazy directions, but I don't think we need to complicate this. The idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is not a new concept. The Old Testament actually talks about a time when God would put his spirit within people, pour out his spirit upon them. And this is what it's referring to. God is going to take his Holy Spirit and place it into sinful people. And I love that he mentions this idea of fire, because what does fire do? It purifies, it refines. So so if God puts his spirit into a sinner, what does that sinner become? Holy, holy, holy. That's a crazy thing to think about. That's the baptism that we're talking about. This baptism actually makes it possible for us to walk in repentance. If it weren't for this, I would have no hope in change. I would have no hope in in turning. And you know, John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what makes it possible because God has poured out his spirit upon me. He's given me a new heart that has new desires, but it's because of him, not because of me. It's not a, a result or ability of my righteousness. It's a result of being connected to the vine, Jesus. So change is possible because Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire and water baptism corresponds to that reality and should probably be done in quick succession. I don't know why we don't do this. Uh, God's word says, believe and be baptized, right? It, it just, it always, I think of the Ethiopian where he, he believes and then he looks over and he goes, hey, there's water. Is there any reason that we can't get this done today? And, you know, he's now nah, you have to go through a 12 week class. <laughs> we need to make sure that this belief is real. And, you know, that, that, that didn't happen. He got baptized. And I, I don't know what it is about so many Christians who wait or even just to act like it's not important. We should love baptism. We should absolutely love it because it really is connected to what Jesus has done for us. So I don't know why we wait so long or why we put it off. I just was talking to a family member recently who I thought was baptized. 
And it turns out, no, like 30 years. And I said, do you want to be? And he's like, not really. (laughs) Why? It's important. It was important to Jesus. Even he was baptized. And I love that our Lord never asks us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Even things he had no reason to do, like be baptized. So we see this in verse 13, along with John's very reasonable objection, since he knows exactly who Jesus is. This is he will introduce him as the, the spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. John knows who this is. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be, or to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. It's like, I'm the filthy one. You're the holy one. He gets this. And you come to me to be baptized? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness And then he consented. The greatest man, according to Jesus, John the Baptist, we read that a little bit earlier, says, I'm not worthy to carry your sandals, Jesus. That was the job of a slave. It's like feet washing. I'm not even worthy to, to do that. I love that John had no desire to compete for a position with Jesus. If you think about it, John could have become a rock star because of this. And this is John the Baptist. He's the herald. He's the one. I mean, you can imagine church. You know, I baptized Jesus in the Jordan and sell. And he could have he could have made some money off of this deal. He had no desire to do that. He said, no, no, I must decrease. He must increase. John was content to be in the shadow of Jesus and not the other way around. And I don't see this sometimes in, in church leaders. If you ever get anything like that from us, please uh, warn us and then maybe run. Um. It's just scary to me. Any Christian leader or pastor who doesn't model this is somebody to stay clear of. So John understands how sinless Jesus is, that he has nothing to repent of, and so baptizing him doesn't make any sense to him. But Jesus says, no, no, we're fulfilling something, John. You're fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, announcing the Messiah to the world, and I'm fulfilling something too, righteousness for sinners. Being baptized alongside of them was part of that mission. I don't know if you can imagine what that would have looked like that day to see Jesus, the Holy One, walk down into that water alongside other sinners who were being baptized. He had no business being in that water, just like he had no business being on that cross. And yet, he's about his Father's business doing what he came to do for sinners. His baptism is a crazy preview, really, of the sacrifice that he will give on the cross. And I can't help but think about all of these sinners confessing their sin, going down into the river symbolically to be cleansed, and all that filth. You just imagine that filth being washed off of them, you know, symbolically. But then Jesus goes down into that water, that filthy water, and he lets that filth of sin just wash over him. It doesn't make sense, but this is what we see at the cross. It's neat to think about Jesus as the true temple of God, as the high priest of God, as the Lamb of God, going down into this water, humbly associating himself, identifying with sinners, and being baptized with us. At verse 16, we get this beautiful validation 
of Jesus in what takes place in verse 16. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we see the father, we see the spirit, we see the son, the Trinity involved in this, in this baptism. And we see the reality of the last point that I'm going to make the reason that John the Baptist told people to repent and to be baptized was because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? It ultimately means that Jesus is at hand. He's within reach, right? Kingdom always carries the idea of reigning. Heaven came down to us through Jesus. You know, the king has entered the building is basically what we're seeing here. He came down to rub elbows with the likes of us. To be baptized alongside of us and to go to the cross because of us. And his finished work on the cross was the inauguration of his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But one day, maybe very soon, his kingdom will be fully realized and visible to all. That day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is King. He is Lord of all. Hearing that a kingdom of heaven is at hand should create some urgency in us, should it not? Urgency for those who've been putting off God for maybe a more convenient time and also urgency for us who have been putting off telling others about him before it's too late. John the Baptist commuted two very important things for us to hear Two very important things about humanity. There is a need for us to change, and there is one who can change us. Um, there's a commentary I like called Preaching the Word, and it kind of pointed out something that I found amazing um, in closing. It's this pattern that we see here of Egypt, water, desert, and promised land. All right? Egypt, water, desert, promised land. So Israel came out of Egypt through the water, parting of the Red Sea, wandered in the desert for 40 years, and then eventually entered the promised land. Jesus comes out of Egypt. His family had just fled there, remember? So Jesus comes out of Egypt through the water here at the Jordan River into the desert for 40 days where he's going to be tempted. We're going to look at that next time in chapter 4. And then his time in the desert would kind of continue on as he goes to the cross to suffer, to die to be buried before rising again, ascending back to the Father where he's preparing a place for us, the promised land. See it there? So the road has been mapped out for us, trailblazed by Jesus himself. Egypt, water, desert, promised land. Jesus will lead us out of Egypt. Sin, slavery to sin. He will, he will lead us through the waters of baptism where we will be purified by the Holy Spirit with fire. We do have to spend a little time in the desert, unfortunately. I like to think of it as wilderness training, right? There's a purpose in it, though. There's a point. We're being conformed into the image of his son. We're being sanctified. And we're also there to maybe find some other people that might be wandering in this desert place to, to bring them along, too, to show them how they can get out of the land of Egypt through the waters of baptism and eventually into the promised land because that's where this is all heading. Our final destination is the new Eden. God's kingdom, the promised land. And there's nothing stopping you from going there. It's simply by receiving by faith who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. Uh, Father, we're, we're grateful for this account of John the Baptist and for what this means to us as sinners, that you have not left us the way we are, but you provided a way for us to know you and to have an eternal home with you. 
Uh, Father, if there's anybody here that has never repented, turned from self, turned from sin and turned to you, I pray that today they might be willing to confess their sin and acknowledge their need for you, humbly bow before you and receive you as their Lord and Savior. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.